Well, we're in our second week, uh, in our, really our second week of a series. Uh, we've looked at a savior of the world. Uh, obviously, it's a Christmas season, Christmas time to reflect on the incarnation, what Christ has done, who he is, um, what this savior even looks like. And last week, we looked at uh, the promise of the savior from Isaiah 9. And we saw really three points. Uh, I think sometimes these are helpful because... Uh, it's easy for me to forget, like, what did I preach on last week again? So I'm assuming if I can't always remember, definitely you're not probably remembering uh, as well. But last week we looked at really three promises of the Savior of the world. And we said one is this, the Savior will bring light to a dark world. Uh, the sa- number two, the Savior will bring joy to the nations. Uh, and the three, the Savior will establish an eternal kingdom. Uh, and we looked at these promises. But if you think about this this prophecy, because again, in Isaiah, it's a prophet, and he's relaying what the Lord is wanting him to tell his people. And so, I mean, 700, you think about this, this prophecy comes 700 years, 700 years before Christ comes. Uh, and in Isaiah seven fourteen, we see that uh, this prophecy is this virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we see the fulfillment of that. Think about it, a fulfillment of a promise, a statement, 700 years prior uh, to it happening. And so Isaiah writes this as a promise, and he's telling us about who this Savior is going to be. And they're like, why do they need saving? In their minds, they're thinking more of a physical saving. Like right now, we're in oppression. We're looking at the Assyrian uh, nation in this um, empire overtaking us and leading us into exile and leading us through pain and suffering and where we can't even go outside, if you remember we talked about that um, last week. And so Isaiah writes this telling us about there is this one day going to come, this Savior of the world. And here's some of the things he promises, that he's going to bring light to a dark world. And we were saying how the Gentiles, and it was, it was a light to, the, um, to uh, the people in Galilee first, and how you know, a bulk of Jesus' ministry on earth was in Galilee, and they were the first to see the glory of the Messiah and to see his, this miracle in Cana and then um, and some, at the wedding and at other times. And so they, they're the first ones to see this light in a dark world. And then it brings joy, right? Like we think of the song we just sang together um, about joy to the world. I mean, this we cannot experience joy apart from Christ. You can experience some some. Uh, fleeting happiness that can come and go and people can experience happiness, but fullness of joy is only found in Christ and we see that. And then he comes, but that's the problem. The Israelites were looking for a certain way. They had an expectation of what this Savior would look like and he's coming to establish an eternal kingdom and that kingdom wasn't going to quite look like what they had expected. Today I want us to look at a passage uh, in Philippians chapter 2. I think you have some notes there in front of you as well, so you might already know, I might already be there, but Philippians chapter 2. And I want us today to look at the identity. So last week, the promise of the Savior. Today, I want us to look at the identity of the Savior. Who is this Savior? Who is this, this virgin who's going to conceive and give birth to a son? And they're going to call his name Emmanuel, and we're going to hear about these things. And, in, and we didn't even focus on probably the one that you, the verses that you focus on the most in actually Isaiah 9 that we looked at last week of who he is, that he's this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal uh, father. He's the prince of peace. Uh, These are some of the attributes of what this promised savior is going to look at. But in Philippians 2, I think this is one of the, you know, if you look at scripture, I've heard this over the years. If you look at scripture as like climbing these mountains, that this 
this passage that we're going to look at in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, just this short part of this chapter, uh, is one of the Mount Everests of Scripture. It is one of the highs of, of climbing to, a sta- to attain and understand who God is and what He is like. And uh, in this passage, there's a lot that we can learn. Um, and so if you want, I want us to look at it together. So I want to read all of it. And then uh, I want to actually start in verse 1. Read all of it, but we're going to hone in on our points coming from 5, five through 11. So chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. So Paul's writing to this church, and he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I mean, you see how he's talking about unity and how this unity in the church is going to form. How is it going to form? It's going to form by our unity to the Savior. And he says this in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish um, ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's talking about a theme, you could say, of this section is humility. And what we're going to look at is the example of Christ that we're going to learn some truths. uh, And really, we're going to look at three truths about the Savior that should change us from this passage in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So look at verse 5. I'll read the whole section here. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself... By taking the form of a servant, being humbled, uh, 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 sorry, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So basically, this passage that we're looking at is one of these really big highs, this kind of climbing, as we're climbing scripture and looking at it as like these mount, this mountain range and the, the beauties. It's one of the Mount Everest of scripture is, is climbing up to this. But what we're going to see is the condensation of Jesus, how he goes down, and then we see the exaltation of Christ at the end of verse 11. But this was, uh, most people, um, uh, most theologians, commentators, different ones, view this as a hymn that was sung about Jesus or, um, or, or uh, a creed that was stated about Jesus, specifically verse 5 through 11. But did you notice in verse 5, I, I think this is very interesting, um, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, there's a few different translations on that, and really it's because there's a difficulty with a verb in the Greek on this. But he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, is the English Standard Version has it written. But think about this. Uh, my, my, one of my idols growing up um, was Michael Jordan. I know it's not necessarily a great idol to follow his character and life and all that thing. I probably should have looked to my pastor a little bit more or something. I don't know. Or just Jesus, right? Exactly. Um, but there was this phrase. Do you remember? What was the, what was the phrase uh, that was around in the late 80s, early 90s about Michael Jordan? Do you remember it? There was this. It was really an ad. I just lost my wallet. Uh, uh, it was an ad campaign. You remember what it was? It was any, any of you guys, you're like, no, because I was not that old. I mean, he's, Michael Jordan already retired by the time. Okay. Um, it was this, I want to be like Mike. 
That was like the phrase. So when I was growing up, my brother was a huge Michael Jordan fan. And so my brother's four years older than me. He had posters. He had like the, he had this really cool big book that had all these illustrations. It had like his hand, like the actual size of his hand in that book. And it was like, I put my little hand there and it was like Michael Jordan, like way up here, his fingers. He had massive hands. Um, and, and all I knew that I want to do is I want to be like Mike. I was like, man, what a great ad campaign. Like who doesn't want to be like Michael Jordan? I mean, this guy, uh, there's story, there's so many stories about Michael Jordan. There was a time where he was up in, he was not even in the States. He was in Canada somewhere. I just heard this actually this week. Uh, he was somewhere out of the country and like, there's this, like, like it would be like, I can't remember who, uh, cause I don't know. <laughs> Although I'm not like high up on my rock and roll culture and knowing all the people. But uh, like think of like the Beatles, for instance. It was like one of the Beatles was there in the lobby and everybody's like talking and they're like trying to get to pictures with one of the Beatles and they're talking to him. And then Michael Jordan comes out of the lobby and, or comes down the elevator and comes out and everyone just forgot who that guy was and flocked to Michael Jordan. I mean, he was an icon during those years. I mean, there's, no, I mean, his brand is everywhere now. I mean, I was, I was commenting last night on diamond shoes because I thought they were sweet. She had Air Jordans on last night, and I recognized them because um, I wanted to be like Mike. But the problem was, it didn't matter what shoes I put on, I couldn't be like Mike. I would try. I'd stick my tongue out, and I would go for the long dunk on my seven foot goal at home, and I'd still hit the rim. You know, like I just couldn't jump quite. High enough. I couldn't shoot like him. I couldn't play defense like him. Actually, there was nothing that looked like him in me. But here, look at this. Look, I think this is so fascinating, the way this is, this is phrased here. There's a few different ways to take this. Um, one is this, is, is this as an example, right? But notice what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, like, for instance, as hard as I tried and as much as I wanted to be like Mike, I just couldn't be like him because I just... Don't have it in me. And there, obviously there's a plenty of things that we cannot be like Christ in. But there's also these truths about as you're in Christ that, you, that are yours in Christ. There's certain things. That, and here the call is to have the mindset of Christ, an attitude, an approach to life like Christ. And here we're going to see a few truths that we're going to learn from um, from who this Savior is, the identity of the Savior. The first truth about the Savior that should change us is Jesus, the Savior, is fully God. Jesus, the Savior, is fully God. Notice in verse 5, so Jesus, the Savior, is fully God. This Savior isn't just a, a, a strong king that God just raises up. God raises up, he's like, you know what, I want Saul, like in the Old Testament, I want Saul, who's going to be this guy who's head and shoulders above everyone else, and he's going to be uh, the king, and he's going to lead the people, or now I'm going to choose David, this, this shepherd boy out in the field. He's going to, I'm going to raise him up, or I'm going to raise Solomon up, or I'm going to raise another king up, or I'm going to raise this person up. This isn't just another king. This isn't another person that God says, I want them to be a savior. This isn't like the judges of raising up Gideon to rescue his people. Here we learn that this savior is, in fact, fully God. Look at verse 5 again. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, though he's in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather, it says in verse 7, he emptied himself. So here we're, we're already seeing that, I mean, Jesus, this Savior, who Jesus is, we're trying to identify who he is, 
Who is this Savior, this promised one that we're seeing in Isaiah 9? Who is he? Well, we learn, and we see this throughout Scripture, John 1 and other passages that we've already actually looked at in a previous series, that he is, in fact, fully God. He's not just partial God. He's not an addition to God. He's not the first highest created being. He is, in fact, fully God. He is the form of God, and he doesn't count equality. Notice this. Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He is equal with God. I mean, think what that implies about Jesus, that he is equal with God. I mean, that he is, I mean, that's what it means. I mean, like, you can't just be equal with God like you're like this great villain and, and then here's God and you're the great villain and you're like equal with him. And it's like, who knows, we'll win. No, equality with God means you are God. <laughs> like you can't, uh, you can't be equal with God and be another God or like, hey, be almost the same or like 1A or 1B. No, he's fully God. He's in his in full form is God and also equal with God. But here's the thing, and what we're saying in this, in, this, in this study today is, here's these great truths. I think you already know this, right? Most of you, I think, pretty, I, mean, I hope all of you in this room understand that Jesus, the Savior, is fully God. He is completely in essence and in form and everything about him. He is God. But that's great, okay? You, you know that already. You already know that he is God, but here's the thing is because Jesus is God, that truth demands a response. It should, as what we're saying here, these three truths about Jesus that, uh, that should change us, it demands a response. It demands a, a response. Because Jesus is God, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is God? Why is that a big deal that the Savior of the world is in fact God in the flesh, like that he's actually God? You see, Jesus, remember in the, in the Gospels, Jesus asked his disciples what people were saying about him. Do you remember? He's asking, hey, Peter, James, John, others of you, <laughs> the rest of you. That's like, what we always say, right? Like Bartholomew, is that easy one? I can't remember. You know, we, we say these things, right? But we, we at least have Peter, James, and John, right? Um, and so he's asking them and he's saying, like, who do you say they am? What are the people saying about, about me? And he said that they responded by saying, some will say that you're this prophet. Um, others, that you're this great rabbi, you're a great teacher, or maybe you're like the incarnation of Elijah and one of the prophets, or maybe even John the Baptist, who was, who was beheaded and you've come back again. And then what does he say? He said, well, who do you say that I am? Notice, who he is demands a response. Like the fact that he is God, it, it demands a response. And what was the response that they said? What did Peter, Peter boldly proclaims? Do you remember what he said? What did he say? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, I recognize you for who you are. It demands, actually, this truth about who God is demands a radical response. You see, there's zero room for half-hearted discipleship. You either follow him uh, and look to him as Lord of your life, or you run away from him. Like, you pursue him or you run from him. If you're standing still, it's as if you're running from him. Like, it doesn't, it, there's not a half-hearted uh, calling. If he really is actually, the Savior of the world, is actually God, it demands radical response. But here's the other thing. If Jesus is really God and he really did come and die in your place, it should change our hearts and our minds. It should change, notice verse 5 again, right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're to, it should change our mindset, it should change our approach to life. It should change the way we think, our attitudes, our thoughts, our actions. 
You know, maybe, maybe though, to be honest though, maybe some of you have been, been really hurt by a person who said, I love you. You know, or then they abandoned you or someone who should have been there for you and said they love you but didn't keep their word. Right? It hurts. It leads to doubts. You question who they are and if they actually really care. But think about this. If Jesus really is God and he says, I love you, I will never forsake you. I'm coming back for you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will send a helper, the comforter, as he makes these promises about the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling. Listen, this truth about who God is, that he's fully God, should embolden us and give us extreme confidence. Because Jesus is God, it changes. It changes our focus. You know, because Jesus is God, as this Savior is actually God, it should change our focus. Because Jesus is God, he creates us with purpose. Like, we actually have a meaning and a purpose. Because I am actually, because Jesus is God and he comes, it gives us a purpose, it gives us a hope, it gives us a reason to live for. You know, God created, to, I think this is a truth that's really resonated over with me for the past couple years as I pondered on this through my own just scripture reading. Think about this. God created to give love, not to get love. You know, you think, why did God create the world? Have you ever thought about that? Like, just really, like, have you ever deeply considered why? I mean, if God is fully satisfied, there's no need that he, if he's, I mean, if he has a need, then he's not God. Because God has to be fulfilled in and of himself, or there would be something else that he needs, then it's like, okay. So think about this. Why create everything? Why create humankind who's going to reject him? I mean, God, it wasn't, God wasn't like, oh no, Adam and Eve rebelled against me. Oh no, they sinned. Man, I didn't see that coming. No, we know that he, he knows all things. He is ordaining all things. He is sovereign over his creation. Why does he create everything? I think this is what's resonated for me over the past couple years as I've wrestled with some of these truths and some of these, even the Christmas story of reading John 1 and studying John 1 is this, is God created to give love, not receive it. He doesn't need Eric's devotion to be like, man, I'm so glad Eric loves me. I'm so glad he wants to put me first in his life. No, he's wanting to give of himself. And we're going to see this example as we continue on in this, uh, in this passage but God creates to give love. God doesn't need me and you for community. He already had that perfectly for eternity past in the Trinity, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he creates us to give us community. He gives us love and it fills our needs and not his needs. And so because Jesus is fully God, your worth, your identity, your significance is all wrapped up into who he is. So when this passage states that Jesus is fully God, it should change our mindset. It should change how we think about God. You know, it should lead us to proper view of ourselves. I mean, think about also the time where Peter was approached, right? The first time Peter's approached, he's in a boat. He's fished all night, right? He's fished all night long. Uh, and he and his other comrades just don't catch anything. I mean, there's fishermen. They know what they're doing. Uh, but yet they couldn't catch any fish. And so Jesus shows up to him the next morning. He says, Hey, they're all exhausted, probably frustrated because they didn't catch anything. And Jesus says, hey, let, take me out on the boat again. And he takes him out on the boat again. And he tells him to cast the net on the other side. I'm sure Peter's rolling his eyes like, okay, who are you? You're, you're supposed to be a carpenter. Why are you telling me? I'm a fisherman. This is what I do for a living, right? Um, why would you tell me to do this? And so, but when he does this, do you remember what happens when that boat is full of fish? What Peter says, he says, he says this, it's so interesting. So when he sees who God is, that he's, that Jesus is, in fact, God. 
He says, he says this. This is what I've already mentioned this before. He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Why say that? Not be like, whoa, how did you do that? <laughs> Not like, man, what, what, how did you know where to put those, that net? Like, I've been doing this all day and there was nothing. Like, and this is not the time of day to be fishing. Why are we doing it? Like, he wasn't just blown away. No, what is, he's blown away by who God is. It changes him. He's like, man, I, it, it, what, when, when you see God as, when you see Jesus as fully God, when you see who God is, what it does is it changes your view of yourself. You see yourself, like Peter says, and you see yourself as sinful. Isaiah, when he saw the presence in the throne room of God, was the first thing he's like, like, depart from me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and dwell among a people of unclean lips. Like, and he's like, for my eyes have behold the glory of God. He's seeing who God is. He's seeing he's actually God. He's seeing God. What does Thomas do? You remember Thomas? We always give him the hardest time, doubting Thomas. Like, man, what a nickname. You're like... <laughs> Come on, it's surely there's a better nickname than the Doubting Thomas. But he gets it. He gets Doubting Thomas. He's questioning, right, the, the resurrection story. He just read this, um, and we're actually about to read this to the end of John. But in John uh, chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus appears, right? Like the door's locked, and all of a sudden he shows up in the room. Probably scared him to death. I don't know how that would have looked like. Um, but Thomas has been doubting all the reports. Like, okay, yeah, you said you saw him, but I, I need to see him with my own eyes. Well, sure enough, he sees Jesus. He sees him. He's looking at Jesus. He sees Jesus and Jesus says, hey, here, touch my hands. He says, touch my nail-scarred hands. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Do you know what Thomas said? Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He saw him. He, he understood who God is and it changed him. He's like, my Lord, like, like you're supreme. I'm your master. I'm your slave. I'm under your authority because you are God. You see, the truth this Christmas, and we're talking about who this Savior is, this truth about the Savior that should change us. The first one is that He is fully God. The second truth is this. While being fully God, Jesus would come in human form. So while still being fully God, He would come in human form. Look at verse, um, verse 7 and 8. So, so here we see this. So in verse uh, 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's what he did. Notice this. This is incredible. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here we see while Jesus... Uh, while being fully God, Jesus would come in human form. Notice that, born in the likeness of men, found in human form. And then we even get this phrase, emptied himself. Now, have you heard that hymn that says, like, emptied himself of all but love? It's not a great, that's not a really good theological line, like, actually at all. Like, I, I usually keep my mouth shut during that part of the, part of the hymn. Because it's like, well, no, he didn't empty himself of everything except love in the Incarnation. Uh, so what does it actually mean to empty himself? So if you were at uh, Derek's ordination, which none of you were except a few of you, uh, I asked this specific question because this is a really difficult truth, um, but it's an important one for us to understand about what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself as he comes into humanity? How does, how does it work? How does God become man and it still work? Like how can he be God and man at the same time? And it, well, it comes through the emptying. But what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean? Well, so 
I got some accountants in this room. I'm going to help you with some math, okay? Uh, so in becoming man, uh, for instance, did he lose some of his divine power? Did only becoming partly man, or did he become partly God? Did he set aside some deity so that he could become man? I think one way that I like to understand it is through, is through a little bit of math is this. is basically uh, addition through subtra- or subtraction through addition. By adding on to what he already is, God, by adding humanity, it veiled or it subtracts, it, 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 it hides part of who he is. Like it, it veils his glory so that the disciples could actually look at Jesus, right? Like they could see him, they could talk to him, they could sit with him, they could share a meal together. They could have Jesus, the son of God, wipe, wash their feet. Uh, Jesus could be in their presence and they not die. I mean, no, I mean, like you can't just look at God in all of his glory and live. And so it's veiled. So his deity is veiled. So by adding on to humanity, it kind of shows a subtraction because it's veiling his deity. It's, it's in a sense hiding it. They were hidden. A tozer said it well. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. Uh, there's a really, I think, a good illustration um, by Brian Chapel. He's written some books on preaching that I've read, and he's a pastor as well. But he shares a story. <clears throat> um, he shared a story one time of trying to help explain this truth, and uh, of this African missionary who was telling about there was this African chief who was who was uh, who would have this headdress and this these royal garments, and only this. This chief, he was the strongest and the biggest of all of the tribe. And he would wear the ceremonial garb and this headdress and all these ceremonial robes. And one day there was a person who was climbing down this deep well and they fell into this well. And everyone was trying to scramble how we need to save this man. He's deep down in this well. How can we save him? Who can get him? The problem was there was no one strong enough. There was no one big enough, no one powerful enough. They could get down to him. They could come down, but they couldn't get him back up. They couldn't put him on his shoulders and carry him up. And so they called on the chief, and the chief lays aside. He sets aside his glory, the beauty of his headdress and all of his fancy robes. And he lays those aside, and he climbs down. He goes deep down into the well. He grabs the man, and he puts him on his shoulders, and he brings him up out of the well. And what Brian was trying to explain in that is that's kind of that picture of setting aside your glory to come down into the depths of this well. And so we see Christ, in, who's fully God, he lays aside, he doesn't, he doesn't stop being God. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm not going to be this part of God anymore. But by adding on, to his, uh, adding on to his divinity, humanity, he humbles himself and he lowers himself and he descends down into our world. I mean, think about this. The God of the world. Can you imagine humbling yourself to just take on skin? To be limited. To limit yourself to skin and to, to experience pain and suffering. To experience what heartache feels like. To experience what death and having a loved one experience death feels like from a human standpoint. Because remember, what we're saying is this. Yes, there's these truths, and you already know these truths. You already know that he's fully God. You probably already know that he came and he was fully man. He comes as a man, the Savior. But what does that do? How does that change our mindset? How do we have this mind, which is also yours in Christ Jesus? So this, again, this is a great point. Because Jesus became man, he, notice this, he understands 
us. He knows. He can sympathize, as the writer of Hebrews wrote, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, yet is without sin. He knows what difficulty feels like. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to experience loss. He experienced all those things in his humanity. But think about that, how that changes our mindset. If Christ comes and he experienced what hard times feel like, how can that help us in our hard times? How can that, you know, if you've ever been let down, Jesus... (laughs) you know, has. The disciples slept on him. You know, like, if you've ever been let down, the disciples are over here sleeping while he's wrestling and struggling with knowing that he's headed to the cross. You know, have you ever been disappointed? Jesus has. Have you ever had a prayer go unanswered? Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup suffering away from me. Are you faced with death? Jesus faced death, experienced it, and conquered it so that you and I can live for eternity. See, Jesus sympathizes with you. He understands what loneliness feels like. He knows, understands, and cares. And so, I mean, let that truth sink in for a second. The Holy One of Heaven, God Himself, humbles Himself. And notice this. Look at our passage again, though. And He doesn't just humble Himself. Think about what this means. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to keep saying that verse, because I want you to cling to that. Who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. He humbles. He's lowering Himself. He's <clears throat> by taking the form of a servant. I mean, He didn't just take on the form of a human and become this great king. Isn't born with grapes being, uh, being and, and, and uh, someone just carrying him around everywhere and, and, and give, fanning him all day long. No, he comes born of a carpenter's son. And so that really ultimately leads us to our third final point, which is what we see kind of marked throughout Philippians chapter 2 is this, is humility. <clears throat> humility is one of the defining characteristics of the, of the Savior. Humility is one of the defining characteristics of the Savior. As we've already seen in his humanity, he didn't come as a king or a person who demands attention. Rather, he came as a servant, taking the form of a servant. He humbles himself by becoming obedient, it tells us, to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, notice this, Christ willingly humbled himself. Herod, Pilate, no Jewish leader humiliated him. He chose this path. He emptied himself. He modeled this in the incarnation. He's born in and among humility, the son of a carpenter. He lives humbly without means and resources. Jesus being God did not lead him to claim his rights. Rather, it gave him the grounds to give. I mean, think about this. I love this, actually, this this phrase where it says he emptied himself. So look at that again in verse um, verse 7. Or right before it, actually, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's like as if God's living, as Jesus in his coming says, I'm, I'm coming with open hands. Rather than grasping on and saying, hey, this is my right. I am God. This is my right. I have a right to this, or I have a right to something. It reminds me really of the prodigal son. Right? The prodigal son wanted to claim his right as a son. He wanted his inheritance. He wanted to grab it. He wanted to grasp what was his right. You know, people do this all the time. They want to claim what is theirs. I have a right to this because of my status or of who I am or because of what I've accomplished. I have these rights, these certain rights, and we want to claim on to them. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't grasp 
He actually comes and he serves. You know, Jesus, being God, did not lead him to claim his rights. Rather, it gave him the grounds to give. He comes and he gives. He doesn't, you know, our world is like, get, get, get. Especially during this Christmas season, too. It's get, get, get. Come, pursue, have more, get more. And what is Jesus? He comes and he gives, gives, gives. He's the complete opposite. You know, Jesus, though being God, takes on human form, and rather than claiming his rights, he uses his identity to give, to give of himself. He lowers himself. Notice what it says here. He says he becomes in the form of a servant. How do we know that? We get to watch that. We see that the disciples' feet, washing the disciples' feet. I mean, not even in Hebrew law, I mean, like, not even a Hebrew really could be a foot washer. It was like the low of the low. Like, you didn't, there was no, like, you can just tell this person, you, or even if you're a Hebrew, like, that was the lowest of lows. Like, there's a totem pole, you're at the very, very bottom if you're the foot washer. And Jesus willingly says, none of the disciples, you notice it, you look around the room, none of them were like, hey, we'll wash the feet. Um, but when Jesus did, then they started feeling embarrassed by it, right? And that led them to maybe think that way. Like, no, 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 you shouldn't do this, Peter says. But Jesus willingly humbles himself. <clears throat> this is a distinctive mark of Christ's character. Humility. But I, I think um, I really uh, one of the best examples of this that, um, that I really want to paint for you is, is from Tim Keller. He says it really succinctly. He says, the only way up is down. It says, Christ comes humbly as a servant, obedient to the lowest of lows to die a criminal's death so that he now is forever exalted. Think about that. That's the only way up. The only way to experience, and this is what we see in creation. C.S. Lewis, actually probably the one who more, I've read C.S. Lewis too, and I think Tim Keller pulls a a good bit from C.S. Lewis as well. And C.S. Lewis has written a good bit on this in in a book as well. But about how all of creation is kind of this way. You think of like a seed, it falls from the ground, it has to almost die, it comes and goes in the ground, it's just this little thing. But then all of a sudden from it, by its death, by its dying in the ground, in this kind of season that we're living in, in the fall and winter, spring comes and it sprouts up. You see, for us, how are we saved? It's when we humble ourselves and say, it's not me, it's only of Christ. I don't deserve salvation. It's only by grace. When we humble ourselves, when we lower ourselves, it's then that we're exalted. You see, Christ, look at, I mean, this is why this is such a glorious uh, writing, because as we're hearing this emptying of himself, taking the form of a servant, being born, he's humbling himself, becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on the cross, it's like this V. The way this passage reads is like a V. You see the condescension of Christ, even to the point of death, that's the hinge, that's the point, even to the death, even death on a cross, but then what does it say next? Therefore, because he has humbled himself, because he has come, because he's come fully God, fully man, as he comes as a humble servant. Therefore, what? God has highly exalted him at the name of Jesus. Every knee, or exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, the Lord saves. Jesus is what it means. Yahweh saves. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus lays aside his glory. And because he lays aside his glory, he comes and dies a criminal's death to take our place, to be our substitute. God the Father has highly exalted him above every other name. And see, that's the same for us. As we humble ourselves, as we lower ourselves, as we don't look on ourselves um, with great expectations and we want to get, get, get. Rather, we come open hands like Christ comes. 
That's how we experience exaltation from our Savior. That one day we too will reign with Him in His presence forevermore. So we put others first. We humble ourselves. I want to ask you this. I want to kind of end it this way. Is this, what if, what if, what if Redeemer Community Church really believed that we, that we really held on to these truths and that deep down into our souls, we allowed these three truths to change our mindset, to have this mind or have the mind of Christ, that we would think and act and resemble our Savior. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What would it look like if each of us modeled Christ's humility? How to change your personal growth, your family life, your work life, the relationships around you, maybe in the Atlanta area or the community that we live in. And here's the thing. As we believe these truths, don't let it just be head knowledge about, okay, yeah, Jesus, it's the Christmas season. We talk about Jesus coming. He's fully God. He's fully man. He even comes humbly. That's great. He's a great example. But how can that change our mindset? How can that give us the mind of Christ? And what would it look like if we lived that way? If we served, if we come with open hands rather than constantly claiming what we think is ours. We said, God, this is your life. My life is yours. I'm literally an offering to you. I give of my life. It's not mine even. <laughs> I don't even, it's not, I have no right of, of my own. And here the call is, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so, man, my challenge is let, let's live this one life that we have, the week in front of us this week, today, tomorrow, the rest of our lives, that we would live modeling these truths and saying like, man, because Jesus is God, I can trust him. I can believe when he says, I have given myself for you. I can know that for a fact because he's God. He has the authority to say that. But because he came as a man, he sympathizes with me. I can, I can know that he feels the pain that, and he's felt the pain that I'm feeling now. And even more so. And here he's this perfect model of humility. Let, let that be my aim. To humble myself. To empty myself. And to say, you know, I'm not going to grasp at something that I think is mine. I mean, rather, I'm going to give of what I do have. I'm going to bless others. Uh, and I think that's a great model uh, to, fall, to follow. And, um, and what we'll see is one day when Christ says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the aim, I think, of every believer is to hear, man, Great job. And that doesn't come through attaining great things. It comes through humbleness. It comes through humility and service and being a servant. And that's the call for us. And that's one of the, I mean, there's a lot we could say about the identity of the Savior. But really, these are three truths, I think, about the Savior that should change us from this passage. So let me pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that you did come fully God and fully man. And here you come not with um, claiming all of these rights and coming and telling just people what to do and these things. No, you come and you humble yourself. You come born of a virgin into this humble means, born when there's no even room for you in an inn and you're born in a cave or a, a stable or something and you're born uh, in just such humility where there's not even a place to lay you down like a, a normal baby would experience, but just a, a feeding trough. God, you come and you example this you give us this great example of humility. Thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for sending your son. So that as he descends and as he descends down into the depths of sin and despair, taking on the sin of, of all of mankind, 
that in his death that and his resurrection he has been um, lifted up and glorified and exalted above every other name. And so I pray this is true for us, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. May we not wait into eternity to bow our knee to Christ. May we do that today. May we humble ourselves, become obedient, and have this mindset, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So help us to live out these truths. We just want to thank you for who you are, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen.